0: love this podcast support this show through the acar supporter feature it's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment just hit the link in the show description to support now
1: hi everyone and welcome back to the of dispatchers podcast pd here this episode is episode 10 of the after dinner chat series with william davis recorded december 17th 2021 Please like, subscribe, share the podcast, and leave a review wherever you have found it. But let's get to the episode. Good evening, everyone. Priest of Dispatchers here. Welcome back to the channel. Please like and subscribe as always. Um, if you feel that you can contribute to the channel and value this programming, you can now use this new lovely QR code above or the link in the description to leave a tip. And for those that do leave tips, we have these lovely. Badges in uh, true Blue Peter fashion, um, if you leave a postal address there, I'll send that and probably some sweets out. Um, but bear in mind, if you leave a £1 tip and put an address in the South Pole, it's probably not going to get much passed over. Um, okay. This evening, uh, we have such a treat. We have uh, William Davis with us. Uh, William has a PhD in so many windows open my apologies I want to get the wording right I know it's uh in theater but I want to get the wording exactly right it is in theater and performance that is at UCLA you see right knew. um so basically William's a really smart guy uh and yeah how are you doing today
0: we're doing pretty good I uh was running around a bit to try to get everything all straightened out. So my mind's a bit scrambled, but I'm looking forward to just going over some of the topics and issues, the questions that you might have, and then seeing if we can uh, elaborate on those a bit And relation to the Book of Mormon, the text of the Book of Mormon. One thing I will mention about my background, um, my PhD in theater and performance studies, um, some people might be wondering, well, what's that got to do with Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and translation? Well, theater and performance studies, it's a mixture of both a history of theater and theatrical practices and being trained in history in that area. But also in performance studies, performance studies deals with the ways in which we're not just performing on stage, but the ways that we perform in culture. And it could be the way that a political debate takes place. It could be the way that we present ourselves to the world. And so what I focus on primarily in that is cultural performances. And specifically, I'm looking at kind of historical cultural performances. And so what I study um, is directly related to Joseph Smith, and his performance of the Book of Mormon, or his dictation, and that process of dictating the Book of Mormon, and the context in which that occurred. So a cultural performance, and that's what I study. So that's what I got interested.
1: Well, and that brings us to this fantastic work, Visions in a Seer Stone, Joseph Smith and the Making of the Book of Mormon. Uh, And this is what we're going to be looking at this evening. It is a fantastic book. I know a lot of people, they'll say that their guest book's amazing, no matter what it's like. But uh, William sent me this uh, just the beginning of this week, and I've managed to digest not all of it, but a lot of it and it's just amazing the thing about this book you can see at the top of the stream at the stream i've put book of mormon nuts and bolts that's what we're going to look at tonight we're not looking at whether a tapir was a horse or whether you know it was the right spelling of the name coriantum although i think we we might touch on that (laughs) but what we're looking at are the actual nuts and bolts the the factual evidence that show that the book of mormon is probably a 19th century uh work so okay and i might nuance that
0: just a little bit because one of the things i've done with this work because i realize when you do an academic study you're also dealing with uh, an academic study on a sacred text and how you know different people, you know, feel about that text. So what I would nuance is saying that the Book of Mormon has characteristics that point to the 19th century. And that's not to say, oh, that the Book of Mormon isn't something that someone can believe in. It's not to, it's not an assertion about whether or not Joseph Smith composed it himself or if he was receiving some sort of divine inspiration. Those things are areas of belief that I completely steer clear of in this book and what this book though is meant to do is to look at how the book of mormon itself in the way it's structured in um, some of the contents how the contents are structured for the overall book as well as for some of the sermons how those reveal uh, that there are 17th century elements in that text and however they got put there is according to someone's belief whether god put them there whether an ancient Nephite prophet foresaw the future and structured writings to look like 19th century, or whether it was Joseph Smith's contribution to the translation, um, all those things are belief issues. That, um, And I, just to let people know that this isn't, you know, an attack on the historicity of the Book of Mormon, but rather this is trying to set those things aside and just
1: look at what the text actually tells us about itself. Absolutely. So. And and I think there is so much grey. There are so many gaps. uh, And what you've done here is you've given us some almost... I know you, you nuance it with... In the book, it's very fair to both sides of the argument. But I think that this gives more of a say a, a clearer way of understanding the actual formation of the book but let's let's get into it uh, the structure we're going to go for here is we've, we've got some slides uh, but we're going to look at the home life of the smiths and how that would have influenced young joseph and how that would have created an environment where he might be susceptible to creating the book of mormon and then we're we'll going to look at the outside yeah. world. And, and Before
0: we do that, could could I just slip in one idea? Go for it. And that is, I know that I, you know, when I looked at when I was presenting this book to people who treat the Book of Mormon as a sacred text, and they believe in its historicity. There are different theories within the LDS faith about Joseph Smith's level of participation. Right? So. Um, some people believe that Joseph Smith was completely passive, that he did nothing but read words off the surface of a seer stone. Now that's not a doctrinal point. It's just a theory and that people have looked at, um, and they look for evidence for that. And the other side of that coin also within the LDS spectrum of belief is that Joseph Smith really was a translator, just like he said he was. And. In that instance, when we see these 19th century elements, people would say, well, of course, he's a translator. And therefore, whatever he's getting would be going through his mind and his experience. Now in the book, I give equal weight to everybody. I don't go into detail about which of those theories I think is better or less better. But I will say here that the idea that Joseph Smith participated in that process of constructing the Book of Mormon and whether or not it's because he was the translator or, or people who believe that he simply composed it by himself. The idea that Joseph Smith was involved, um, in my opinion, contains much, much stronger evidence than the idea that he was simply reading words off a of stone. Yeah. So I'll plug that in and then I'll go back to you. I just want okay. to be clear because, you know, I'm trying to give everybody equal weight in this first publication. But I also want to be clear that um, the reading words off a stone uh, does not, in my view,
1: um, carry as much weight, given the evidence that we have. Yeah, well, let's look at some of that evidence now. Um, So in the Smith home, Um, I think this week we've had some talks from Radio Free Mormons speaking to people about uh, Western esotericism, uh, the kind of folk magic um, that was going on in the area. Um, But I will hand over to you, Bill, to take us through. Okay. Um, I think now in the book, I just kind of paint a very broad
0: and in some ways even shallow picture but i'm trying just to give the context of why joseph smith would even bother using a seer stone in the first place and i know that as this idea of magic and the magic worldview has been talked about that sometimes it's misinterpreted as joseph smith pursuing kind of satanic ritual type um ceremonies or practices. And so one thing I wanted to do is to just stress that what was going on here was something that was very different from that. And we can talk about how uh, treasure seeking kind of comes into that. But there's a real difference here between someone who's doing some sort of satanic uh, occult um, practice where there's trying to unleash demons on the world or something. And that's not what Joseph Smith was doing. And uh, there's also a move away from calling it magic um, in scholarship because there's so many um, connotations that come along with magic as you know, judgmental connotations of it being, yeah. you know, fraudulent and bad and whatnot. So we talk about Western esotericism instead. And with Joseph Smith, what he was involved in is a kind of magic um, or esoteric th- Pursued. And so if I say magic or supernatural, this is what I'm talking about. It's where people were trying to gain greater access to God's knowledge and to understand the mysteries of God. And in order to do that, there were all kinds of things to learn about. Um, and with Joseph Smith, he had a real preoccupation with understanding the language of angels, the language of Adam. It was a big thing in his uh, a, a lifelong pursuit for him. And, be, and that was part of this, the way to learn these things was through revelation. And so you had to think, how do I get access to this knowledge through revelation and seer stones were one way of uh, gaining that access. And so when we come back to, um, I see you have a slide up that's from the book, and this is just where I wanted to, to stress what was going on when we talk about occultism that doesn't mean cult occultism is the hidden when something's occult it's hidden from view and covered up and you want to have that revealed so this brand of occultism which is christian occultism was not nefarious with a perverse aim to unleash the powers of darkness onto the world rather this was enlightened christian theurgy or white magic, or God's magic, with the goal of discovering God's hidden mysteries in order to harness greater spiritual knowledge and power. And so that's what's going on with the Smith family when they're looking at this.
1: Yeah, and I think something that becomes clear is that the Smith family are seekers of many things. Um, They were, as you see here, they were, were seeking access to to god's power um but you know he is just some of the imagery um that that goes with those things at the time yeah to 21st century eyes that seems a little hokey Uh, well yeah
0: and and part of that is the context of what's going on in this time period because you know the sciences I mean, today when we separate astronomy from math from physics, and these are separate disciplines today. Well, back then those lines between the disciplines were very much blurred. They haven't been set up yet, and there was a lot that was still being discovered at this time when Joseph Smith was there. They still didn't know a lot of what was going on in the western, what would become the western United States, and and um, so there was a lot of Uncertainty, and there's they're still reaching out around the world and making discoveries, and so there there weren't clear-cut borders between what was a scientific knowledge or a knowledge that was also scientific but deeper and hidden, and therefore part of this magic worldview, or something that was a miracle. All of these things start to um, overlap, and so. For some of the people who were doing legitimate scientific inquiry or mathematics, such as the polymath, John Dee, who lived at the time of Shakespeare, he, he was this brilliant mathematician, but he was also looking in seer stones and try in order to gain knowledge about angels. So anyway, these images come from a, a book that was published in 1925 called The Astrologer of the 19th Century. It was for one of these groups that was in London. And I, I thought I would show these because these also give the focus in the center. You see where it says magic ceremonies. Yeah. And down at the bottom, I put the caption in here so that we could kind of see the difference between... Someone who's just involved in satanic pursuits versus theurgy, which is the godly magic. And down here at the bottom, it says, Such were the mystic rites, ceremonies and incantations used by the ancient theurgist to burst asunder the bonds of natural order and to obtain an awful discourse or an awe-inspiring communication with the world of spirits. And, and so that's what was going on. They were trying to speak with angels. They were trying to learn the tongue of angels. They were trying to learn the Adamic language because knowing that gave a person power. And that's what they were seeking for, this divine knowledge and power. And I just pot, uh, toss this picture in there because they would, the Urim and Thummim also figured prominently in how they would gain access to this knowledge. And so in the center there where it says Tetragrammaton, in the center there might be a crystal or it might just be um, a plate of metal that was polished up and people. And in this case, they wouldn't try to darken the the light. They would try to have it kind of bright. And then they would just stare at it almost maybe self-hypnosis perhaps in a way in, wow. in, in order to try to see images. And then mm-hmm. the Urim and Thummim would tell them what was going on in the past, what's going on today, or what's going on in the future. And it's the same function that we see like in the scriptures about, you know, the Urim and Thummim or the interpreters um, could also give that kind of power.
1: Okay. So we're moving on to another kind of seeking now. So we've, we've established that it wasn't strange, this magic thing or as strange as it seems today. And that use of seer stones, things like divining rods were commonplace in the uh, culture but something else that was commonplace in the culture, especially for those who wanted to better themselves maybe a little bit quicker than uh, farming did or other business ventures was treasure digging and awesome stories of Captain Kidd's treasure and other treasure buried by the natives in these uh, the mound builders and different things. Yeah. And and
0: this is a this was a um picture uh John Quidor he he made this and and I'm I'm blanking it's a very famous um author at the time but he had written a short story about the money diggers and this was an illustration for that story. And uh but what was happening is w- when people gained this knowledge and this insight there was um an idea that well if we can see things beyond normal sight this kind of gifted second sight then that would allow us to see more things john d going back to him uh he even at one point because of his own financial constraints even tried to use this power with his seer he wasn't the scryer his his scryer was edmund kelly and and he would had he had edmund try to see can you can you find any um, treasure for us because the purses are tight and we need some help, and we see something similar to that, uh, like that happening with the Smith family. And and you know we we don't have the historical documentation to pinpoint precisely when things happened, but I'm guessing that when uh, Joseph Smith Senior. Uh, before they had moved to New York and he had gotten involved in uh, wanting to send some ginseng. And he had invested what i believe was three thousand dollars into this ginseng product and then he got taken and it eventually it really just bankrupted the family and that's around the time when when it seems that he was getting also involved with using a divining rod and um starting to it seems that that's when there was if not the beginning of the interest certainly um a ramping up of interest because all of a sudden there's this deep desperation. And a lot of people felt that at that time, um, at this time in period, you were either lucky or you weren't and you might prosper or you won't. And it was, it, it could be a very desperate time for people. And that's what happened to the Smith family. They essentially went bankrupt and, um, there was a terrible, so I th- I think that's when this sort of focus on the money treasure digging started to come into it as well.
1: Yeah. Um, so here we have some, just some of the, I guess, artifacts um, from the Smith family or Joseph himself.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we hear about the Smith family involved in magical practice, I mean, you know, it used to be you didn't hear anything about it. And then we're kind of more aware now that Joseph Smith used a seer stone in the translation of Book of Mormon. But there were other objects that uh, appeared in the family. This, this um, uh These pages I just tossed this together because in our earlier conversations, you had mentioned the Jupiter Talisman, and this is an example of there was a book by Francis Barrett called uh the Magus or the uh, Celestial Intelligencer and this came out in eighteen o one It was a really uh popular book for what it was it wasn 't just his own writings though he was actually um copying the writings of earlier mystics and earlier people he so we'd go into like Agrippa he would uh, copy portions of Agrippa and then but he just kind of organized it all together kind of a Reader's Digest version of several different authors but in this uh, Mike Quinn in his research he had shown where the uh, Joseph Smith's Jupiter talisman uh, could be traced because of some of the designs I tried to put some circles around them um, about how you were supposed to create these Jupiter talismans and so um there was a unique twist in the way one of these lines was broken on a Jupiter talisman that only appeared in Francis Barrett's book, but it also, that same mistake also appeared on Joseph Smith's talisman. So Uh, it suggests it's not, it's not absolute proof, but it does suggest that Joseph Smith had exposure at least to this particular book. And that, that influenced them.
1: It would show that he wasn't, totally uneducated as we'll get onto and that he was yeah. able to pull things from his surroundings and kind yeah. of use them later um so again some of the yeah. other um is, is that the dagger of mars in the uh the top left there Yeah, Um, that's
0: the dagger. When you look at historical references, um, it seems like it might have been Joseph Smith Sr.'s. I think one of the neighbors in Palmyra or Manchester had mentioned uh, the father using a dagger to draw uh, magic circles. And so that might have been Joseph Smith Sr.'s dagger. Um, These objects are not, you know, the central part of my study, but... um, but they're certainly part of the fun. Over here, we have some of the layman's or magic parchments. And uh, layman's uh, were often used for different types of blessings. You might find those actually stuffed in the the top, the eaves of a house or above the f- threshold as a way of kind of blessing the house. And then, of okay. course, in the center, we have the, the seer stone. And these are just pictures that the church provided.
1: The famous seer stone. Okay, now I think this is one uh, in the chat that Robert's been pointing out already about education and growing up in the church I was always led to believe, not uh, I'm sure as many as most people were led to believe that Joseph Smith was almost a blank slate uh, when the (laughs) first vision happened, that there was no Pre-existing prejudices, no pre-existing kind of um, set ways about the world. The Lord could mold mm-hmm. him. Um, so, yeah, early education. Yeah.
0: I'll- so what? What I did, and I didn't go into the book in great detail on this, but I have with some of my other writings, and there's still a lot more to be said. I talked about this more in my dissertation, also in an essay. That I did for dialogue on Joseph Smith's formal and informal education. And one thing that seems to be a sticking point for some folks is the idea that Joseph wasn't as illiterate as people want him to be. And um, when we look back at the historical record, what happens is we have a lot of gaps, especially uh, before the Book of Mormon Came into being. And because there are so many gaps in the historical record that make reference specific to Joseph Smith's education, people will just kind of pick those little places where it's mentioned and then assume that that's the only time he ever received education. And then if there's a gap or there's a silence in the historical record, you'll find some people will say, well, you can't prove that he went to school, so. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and what happens is that that's not good historical research. What you want to do is to go back and see what's happening in the context of those references and then expand it out and look what's happening in the context of people around them and the practices around them in order to start to get a good view of what was going on. Now, also in addition to that, one thing that's really important is knowing that at this time in early America. The way that people got their education was different than the way that people get their education today. Today, people will go to a, a, a school, usually, or homeschool, but generally someone will go to a public school or a private school, and that's where they get educated. And the only time there's some education at home is if the parent decides to help someone with homework or if a parent helped someone to learn how to read when they were, you know, 3 or 4 years old before they went to kindergarten. But back then, the way that people got education was through formal avenues and informal avenues, and the entire culture was committed to this idea of self-improvement where people you you wouldn't just say, "Oh, I'm just going to go to my local common school and that's the only place where I'm going to get" um educated and that's the only avenue so when we look at the historical record and we look at what's going on in the smith family they're participating in the full range of educational opportunities so like on this slide we you know i have where it says the evening uh circle that was domestic education that's not the same thing as homeschooling. Domestic education was education that took place at home that was supposed to be in conjunction with what was going on in common schools. And a lot of times with uh, uh, domestic education, it was the parents who would be the first ones who would actually start to teach their their kids the alphabet and um, how to read. And then they were also, even before they could read and write. They would be teaching them things like the Westminster Catechism, the call and response about uh, doctrines, the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, and even memorizing short scriptures. And these are, these are kids who are four, three, four, five years old, where they wow. would start this process. And so w- we do have uh, historical references to the Smith family having school at home and also where they use the Bible as their text. Then you have formal education, and that, of course, is the common schools. And when we look at that, and that's usually the only thing people look at when they're trying to to, to figure out how educated Joseph Smith was. Joseph Smith attended education when he was um, in Vermont. Uh, We have it for New Hampshire. We have it for around the time when his brother was going to Moore's charity school on the Dartmouth campus. Um, we have him in Palmyra, we have him in Manchester, and we also uh, have him when he was um, working for Josiah Stoll. And when you go look at those, those are just brief references to them. And when you go and look at who, how we know, for like example, when he's in Palmyra, there are several people who said that Joseph Smith was attended school with them. And uh, when you look at who they were when they lived there, then... Joseph Smith, it's not like one term and then he cut out, but he would have had multiple terms of school at Palmyra. So we know he was involved in formal education. Then there was also Sunday schools. And we know from a reference that he was also attended Sunday school with a neighbor for a while. And during that time, there was a lot of Bible reading. And also there would be readings that if, if they're still learning how to read the Bible, um, a beginner's Bible, so to speak, they would have pamphlets, uh, things with the Christian Missionary Societies and the Sunday School Societies would be producing uh, shorter works for things. And uh, one thing that I've been looking at, too, is the, the writings of John Bunyan, especially the Pilgrim's Progress. That was considered a beginner's Bible to teach people how to read um, religious works if the bible language was still a little too complicated also you have reading and self improvement which was a huge deal that usually went oh were you going to say something
1: i was going to say on this one the reading and self improvement um yeah brings me to a point that i've been waiting to bring up so we spoke before um about this image of the smith family and yes i know that a big thing that's been made of um i guess the smith home is that they had certain books on the shelf or that joseph was mm. exposed to certain books and that you can look at those books like the late war um and did have them in front of me the late war and the first book of napoleon and that the mm-hmm. writing styles in those books directly correlates with the Book of Mormon, and that, that might they might have been some of the books he was reading in the home. Yeah. Um,
0: I, I, with what we know now, I would hesitate from saying Joseph Smith definitely read those. And the reason why, and um, not to... You know how to explain this succinctly without being complicated those studies are based upon looking for strings of words that are yep. together so if you have the exact same string of words and they're repeated in another book the exact same string of words then uh, the the idea the thinking behind it is the more of those you have the more likely that there was some kind of exposure or connection between the two works yes um And so with the work that's been done on the late war, for example, it has a lot of similarities uh, in a lot of these strings of words, they call them engrams. And, but there's a challenge to that because you have to, you, you always have to ask a question is, does this necessarily mean one was dependent on the other or were they both dependent on yet an earlier source that they both shared in common, the Bible, for example. And so you, In order to start demonstrating that kind of dependence, uh, the studies I've seen need further work. And one of them is you you need to start isolating, for example, and and you have to address that problem of dependence. Like if these strings that are shared between the late war and the Book of Mormon also appear in the Bible, then... the source could have been the bible and the two might not have been even related to each other at all and the other issue that that i have is that when you're doing those studies it's kind of a global comparison you're comparing this whole book and it's completely stripped of context and i know that some of the stylometry they call them the word print studies intentionally try to strip it of context and look at non-contextual words but um I just say that all of those studies we haven't arrived yet you know there's more that needs to be done in order to start supporting the types of claims that are coming from those studies
1: okay does that help?
0: <laughs> Did I just no. make it more confusing or more questions
1: no i i think i think as we as we go through uh this this presentation it will make sense um i know that Robert's speaking about Joseph Smith's grandfather's book. Uh, Mm -hmm. Are you aware of that?
0: Yeah, it's a pamphlet where uh, he basically told his life story, um, and eventually how he came to God. And the thing, uh, I'm I'm almost certain that he would have known about his his grandfather's book. Um, I mean, how could you not? I mean, he's dad's grandpa's published a book. but but something that's in that that comes around to education is he does point out in there how important it is for education in the family and and then we also have to think about joseph's grandmother lydia mac or she was a school teacher lydia and um Smith's father uh, had been a school teacher and And there's something I just wanna mention in detail because uh, some people have criticized me because I called Joseph Smith Sr. a school teacher. And and so I just, I'm gonna point something out and this is coming out in a publication a little bit later anyway, but when uh, Joseph Smith's younger brother William was talking about his father he mentions that Joseph Smith Sr. was a schoolteacher, and in the chronology of what he's talking about, the events of the life, he's saying he was a schoolteacher before he got married to Lucy Max Smith. And so people think that Joseph Smith Sr.'s only experience as a schoolteacher was after they were married and in Vermont. But William's statement is very intriguing because it suggests that Joseph Smith Sr. became a teacher right after he got out of common school. And, and that that was completely in line with what was going on in the day. You could have 16, 17, 18 year olds out teaching schools elsewhere. And so he he may have had a lot more training as a teacher than we tend to think he did. And so this is the kind of household that Joseph Smith was growing up in where he had a grandmother as a school teacher, he had a father who was a school teacher. And his mother was deeply involved in their education as well. She, uh, you know, had also been trained by Lydia.
1: To be honest with you, I'm starting to think that at the age of 14, Joseph Smith was probably far more educated than I was at the age of 14, according to the teachings of the day, if you know what I mean. Obviously, there's been lots of advances, but with all yeah. the home learning that he was doing and and different things, he seems like he was you know, I go to school for several hours a day, true, but then I come home and avoid doing any homework as much as possible, you know, mm. rot my brain with neighbors and home and away, which is, <laughs> you probably don't <laughs> have them and they're, they're like uh, soap operas and, uh-huh. you know, you you go back to school begrudgingly, but it seems like there was that thirst for knowledge constantly.
0: Yeah. The, it re, And it went back long before Smith's day. I mean, you can look even back to the writings of Benjamin Franklin, and he talks about how he put together this uh, literary society in which people of every level of society were gathering together in this group to learn more, you know, about what was happening in the world, the latest scientific discoveries. And that's another thing that's going on when we talk about reading and self-improvement. We also, the, the local bookstore owner described Joseph Smith as coming in, and he said he read comprehensively. And then he goes on to criticize him, saying some of them were just, you know, Billy the Kid treasure-seeking type stuff, but that he would also start debating people about new and fresh ideas about biblical interpretations. But that word is critical. He says he was reading comprehensively. And what what that means for that time period is that he was reading everything he could get his hands on. He was reading every single different topic in the store. He wasn't just looking at these um, little items. And I know that uh, other people will come back and say, well, his mom said he couldn't stand reading at all. But you have to stop and think, where's his mom? You know, if was she following him around every time he went into town and this idea that this bookstore said that he would come in and start perusing the books, you know, that's corroborated. Because when Joseph Smith was looking to get a printer and when he was in Rochester, one of the the people who worked at the store when Joseph Smith came in to say, could you print my book? He also described what Joseph Smith was doing. And while he was waiting, what did he do? He went diving into the book stacks and reading them and reading. And, and uh, so... Does it-
1: I was gonna say it doesn't sound like someone who wants to avoid books.
0: Yeah. And and you know, unless unless his mom followed him from place to place to place and essentially was his shadow, her ability to be able to say what Joseph Smith was or wasn't doing would be limited to what she saw, and if if that's pre- predominantly what's happening at home, and the family's too poor to go buy their own library, then the only time Joseph Smith is going to be reading when he is when he's not at home, or yeah. whatever limited books they have, such as the Bible or something else. Yeah. So a lot of times these things are exaggerated, um, or or told from a specific perspective that people need to look into
1: more deeply yeah um, um it, as you mentioned before the book shop owner was saying that he would debate with anyone uh, and yeah. we got down there the literary uh, literary and debate societies uh, yeah. which were a big thing back then
0: yeah so this is these types of societies were essentially when you're in an area where the common school education it can only do so much but once that common school education is essentially run dry and there's still people who are saying i've got to participate in the society and the way that people participate if you want to become a lawyer you have to know how to speak in public if you want to become a leader, a local civic leader, you have to learn how to speak in public if you, if you, so the people who were leaders in this town were essentially trained orators. And, and there's this something that uh, went on back then that today is really hard to recapture and imagine. And it's also one place where education today and education back then really diverged in a major way. Back at that time, there, there are some things that overlap. Of course, we learn how to read today. They learned how to read back then. Um, we learned how to write and spell today. That's the same thing back then. But then the way in which they taught those things. In a modern school, we're fixated on a pen to paper. It's a written activity. Where back then, the schooling was a spoken activity. And when you got to the end of the term, you, you didn't have a written test. You had spoken presentations in front of a crowd. It would be the parents, it'd be local leaders, the church leaders, the civic leaders, and you'd get up and you have to recite poems, you'd have to recite essays, monologues. Sometimes you'd be in doing a short uh, scene from one of the readers. Um, so it was all, even when you did like geography and other topics, math, uh, you would have to. You, it was essentially an an oral presentation to des- describe uh, those topics or respond to questions about those topics. And kids, we don't have this today. And the only place I've really seen it is in um, with actor training. They're taught how to look at a text and then pay attention to every single the punctuation in the text, the ideas, where do you take a breath? Where do you pause? How long do you pause? And that that was just commonplace for these kids. So, I mean, they were trained, little trained orators all over the place. And even as children, small children, they could listen to someone give a 4th of July speech, for example, and they could critique it by saying, oh, his pauses were bad, or, oh, he didn't, uh, what they would say, mind your points mean, paying attention to the punctuation because after after a a period, for example, which they call the full stop, you were supposed to take a pause for X amount of breaths. A comma was shorter and uh, a semicolon was kind of in between the two. And then you also had to focus on enunciation so that you were clear. You had to focus on rhythm. So uh, you had to focus on not being monotone. Where do they teach that in modern schools? You know, they don't. Yes. And, well, then. And, so this kind of speaking was second nature to these kids growing up. So when when you come into a storytelling culture and an educational setting where they're learning this in order to get up and be a lawyer and speak to a courtroom or to get up and give a, a, a speech for their agricultural society or for the uh, the local town meeting, this is how you did it. This is how you became a leader and how you persuaded. This is how you got ahead in the world. Okay. And, and so that's what they were training. Oh, can we go back? Can we go back? Yeah. Sorry. It's okay. So, Joseph Smith, we also know, we also have historical references to him participating in a juvenile debate society in Palmyra. And when people hear that, we don't always know, well, what exactly is going on in a juvenile debate society?
1: And so, is, what would was, happen? Was it like Facebook of the day um, instead of keyboard not, warriors? Not really. No?
0: Yeah, not. I mean, I suppose there could be something, but what they would do is, okay, say you've got eight participants in the juvenile debate society. So what they would do is every week, you'd kind of have an agenda and an outline of what was going on. So someone might come in and they say, oh, you know, I wrote this poem this last week. And so there'd be moments where people could do individual presentations or someone might say, you know, I memorized this uh, speech. Um, this oration from one of the great Greek orators, and so they would deliver it, and so it'd be like a little performance for everybody else. And then people would might talk about it, or you know, t- give them feedback on what that was. They would write essays on particular topics, and then they would read the essay to um, to the rest of their friends and get feedback for it. But then the the, the debate societies, what they would do is uh, they would have a topic, and it could be uh, a topic that was kind of common around this time is they would debate, you know, Jesus Christ. Do, do we need, does, did he need to perform miracles in order to prove his divinity or are the miracles unnecessary? And so th- And that was a topic they were debating in these little debate societies clear up to some of the universities at Harvard and Yale. And so what they would do though, is they would take these eight students and they'd split into two groups for and against the idea and then they would each they would take turns uh presenting their argument for that side now what they would do in the debate societies though is they'd give out the topic one week and so that people had a whole week to go scramble out and look around maybe someone's library a friend's library um uh, the bookstores a local and they would read about that topic in order to be prepared so they'd come back and debate and then usually you'd have you know Ideally, you would have an odd number of people because someone would have to be the judge. And after the people debated back and forth, then the judge would decide. Here's another thing about the juvenile debate societies. If you're gonna participate in one of those, you had to show up. Because if you're given a topic and you have a team, you're committed to be part of that team. And so that gives us that, that's part of the hint that lets us know that Joseph Smith didn't just kind of wander in and, say a few things and then wander off and was gone for five weeks, they would have kicked him out and he wouldn't have been able to participate. Okay. So this, that suggests that he was in sustained um, attendance, practice and attendance. Yeah. And the fact that he even joined up shows that when people say he wasn't interested in education, he just wanted to go fishing instead, that he wouldn't have participated in juvenile debate society if that were the case, because that was totally voluntary,
1: no one forced yes. you to do that. No, and, and so. I think we're what we're doing is we're we're building a character, uh, you know, of someone who genuinely believes in uh, second sight and that there are physical things in this world that can assist in connecting with the divine. Someone yeah. who was educated both at home formally and in the culture around and had a thirst for knowledge someone who um family basically had a lot of bad luck um as Robert Damn. said they were downwardly mobile um in the kind of uh class system of the day and were always looking at how they could you know get back up to to where they felt they belonged uh, so if he yeah. was going to find anything in the ground it was always going to be made of gold uh, in my opinion mm.
0: now this is the the other thing because there's still yet another avenue of education and this probably was less than six months is my guess but that's when joseph smith joined a methodist class meeting and during that time period he also uh, made strides toward becoming a proficient Methodist exhorter, and when it, within this Methodist culture, you say, "Well, what what did these uh, new budding preachers and exhorters do?" And they're coming into a culture that was heavily influenced by John Wesley, and John Wesley's uh, he he put together this vast multi-volume work that I I don't know that there would only be a small handful of Methodist preachers actually read all of them. But it was, it was essentially a collection of all the different writings and works that John Wesley felt that people should be aware of if they're going to be a competent preacher in Methodism. And, and so people were introduced to the Christian library and where you'd have to start reading, but then they were also taught. And you would also learn both by participation and just, osmosis soaking it in as well as yeah. people giving tips about how to preach where they where Joseph Smith if he certainly already would have been exposed to a lot of the preaching techniques of the time and and probably was already familiar with all of this before he went to the Methodist but this is when we have a historical connection to when he would have actually been learning some of these techniques and it's a technique that I talk about it a lot in the book called laying down heads and laying down heads is basically that when the methodists were going to give a, uh, a sermon now this is just in general because every individual preacher had his own style but what they would do is they wanted to develop a, a kind of semi-extemporaneous style and what i mean by that is beforehand they would think okay i'm going i want to talk about a certain scripture And then what do I want to say about the scripture? And so then they would go through and present the uh, major ideas that they wanted. And they would call them heads. And they would only have about three or four of these heads. And you can fit it on a slip of paper. And then what they would do is they just use that as a mental outline. Or they would take the paper up and have it in their scriptures. And then they would just start to preach. But all of the language just kind of flowed in the moment of performance. They didn't re. Pre write out the speech. And they became very well trained in just being able to do that, where, and especially if they were doing that over and over again, you know, where you could just let a sermon flow. And sometimes it flowed so naturally, they'd even say, wow, I don't know where it came from. It must have been the Spirit that took me over and said all of that. Yeah. And I think that's important. Continue. Yeah. I was saying, and that is related to when we're coming around to the Book of Mormon, because when I studied, the text of the Book of Mormon, I look at it, it constantly has indications of uh, the structuring of the Book of Mormon and the language of the Book of Mormon is regularly revealing characteristics that point back to this type of semi extemporaneous mode of production. And so what I'm arguing in the book and what you um, have up on the slide here is that when we want to understand the nature of the Book of Mormon, we need to understand it as a spoken composition and and when i say spoken composition meaning that the words were created in the moment of dictation rather than a written composition yeah and 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 this is really important because uh, a lot of times you'll see people say try to compare joseph smith's dictation of the book of mormon to an author writing a book and and it's not the same thing and people keep saying making comparisons. They'll say, oh, I wrote a book and it took me two years and I had to write 80 different drafts to get there. Well, that is, that is not the same process that Joseph Smith was following. What he was following was this technique of sermonizing. And, um, and so trying to compare the two is comparing apples to oranges. It's not the same thing. So, These are just some examples I put together to show what happens. These are little moments in the text when we can see that there's more of an oral performance going on rather than a written performance because you're seeing the types of mistakes that would not have appeared if someone had written it and revised it but where someone makes a mistake in the act of speaking and then realize a mistake is made. And so you keep continuing and making a correction. Yeah. So there's no going back and revising, but there's revising as you go.
1: Yeah. It's kind of like trying to style it out. Right. Right.
0: And so, and that is something that points to, oral composition. Now, this is a common one. This is from Alma 24, verse 19. This is when the anti-Nephi Lehi's, when they said, oh, we're not going to fight anymore. We're not going to, uh, shed the blood of our brethren. So we're going to bury all of our weapons. And then they, so in Alma 24, they, uh, we have this verse and thus we see that they, the anti-Nephi Lehi's buried their weapons of peace, or they buried their weapons of war for peace. So you see that moment when you hit that or you the, the person who's speaking is kind of like, Whoop, ooh weapon of peace, <laughs> what's a <laughs> weapon of peace, maybe a pen is a weapon of peace, maybe. Um, but but that's a moment where you, you just see that there's a, there's in a split second. It's like, oops, I made a mistake. I'm going to correct this or in or rather uh, they buried their weapons of war. Four piece. Now, this is a common one, but I want to, you know, people have debated on whether or not this was a mistake or wasn't a mistake. And so I decided um, I'm, I wanted to bring an example here that clearly shows it was a mistake because the text itself says it's a mistake. Okay. So let's go to the next one. Yeah. So this is when Alma and Amulek, okay, Alma has come to preach to the people in the city of Ammonihah. And it's there that he meets Amulek. And then the two of them, as a pair go preaching. And so Alma has spoken to the people of Ammonihah, and then now it's Amulek's turn. This is this is really common in circuit preaching, by the way, where you'd have a preacher and his trustee exhorter at his side, although Amulek does more than exhortations. But they, they, they would have preachers going out in pairs where one guy would give a sermon, the other guy would give a sermon. And this is just like that because they're also going around these towns. It's just like an upstate circuit uh, yeah. Preaching route. But anyway, so going back here, Amulek now is talking to the people of Ammonihah. And this is, You know, he's talking to his own people. Some of them probably know him. And he says, "Um, you know, that I'm also a man of no small repu- reputation among those who know me. Many of you out there. He's saying, yea, and behold, I have many uh, kindreds and friends, and I have also acquired much riches by the hand of my interesti- industry. Nevertheless, after all this, I have, n- I never have known much of the ways of the Lord and his mysteries and marvelous power. Bump. And this is the moment when there's a pause. Because you say, <laughs> I said I had never known much of these things, but behold, I mistake. For I have seen much of his mysteries and his marvelous power. You see that? Yeah. It's the exact opposite. This isn't a clarification or a honing down of meaning. This is where, oops, I made a mistake.
1: Yeah. Now,
0: if you're writing the text, you would, if you're writing, you say, oh, that's a mistake. You just kind of cross it out. You know, you don't put all this extra language in here. You just it's say,
1: riff, right?
0: yeah, just go back. And nevertheless, after all of this riches and in industry, Um, I just never known much of the Lord, but instead you have a phrase where he makes a statement. I've never known much of his mysteries and marvelous power. Oops. I made a mistake. Um, I have actually seen his mysteries and marvelous power. Okay. And then here's another one. It's kind of cute, but there's, some of them are really subtle and, and they're a lot of fun, but this is when during the battles and, uh, Captain Moroni is corresponding with Tiancom. Tiankum's in a different part of the country. Uh they just had a massive battle. Uh Teancum's killed Amalakiah. Now Amaron, his brother, is in charge. And then Amaron decides, oh, instead of going out and fighting on the planes and stuff, we're gonna hole up in the cities. And I think it's the city of Mulek, uh, where he- they're kind of just going to hole up and defend their forces. And so that puts Teancum mm-hmm. and his soldiers at a disadvantage because they're out on the plain, they're unprotected, and all the Lamanites are now inside the city. But Teancum wants to keep them on their toes during this time while he's waiting for Captain Moroni to come. And so what does he do? He He wants to go out and build things within sight of the Lamanites. So the Lamanites know you gotta be on your guard. And so we have this in Alma 52, six, but he Teancum kept his men round about the Lamanites as if making preparations for war. So he said, so what he's saying is we're just kind of making it look like we're doing preparations of war to distract them. But then you have this pause, yay. And he truly was preparing to defend himself against them. So here you have a moment where he says, uh, they're just kind of faking like they're doing preparation. Well, you know, actually, they they really were doing preparations of Warrant. And so that's another correction. You see these types of corrections happening again and again throughout the Book of Mormon. And those are not the things that are going to happen if someone is doing a writing project.
1: Yeah, Those are mistakes
0: that you clean up and remove.
1: I wonder why I never saw these things when reading it, but I think it was because I was reading the Book of Mormon from the point of view of an author who sat there and engraving these things upon the plates very specifically. So every word that is there is meant to be there, but when you put it in this uh, oral composition um, point of view, it makes a lot of sense that someone is kind of, it's, it's shooting from the hip almost. Um, yeah. But we're going to get to that as well.
0: And one thing I would say about this, because at this point, you know, if we're going back to belief about Joseph Smith translating a text or Joseph Smith simply composing, I want to let people know that looking at this this way doesn't threaten a belief. What it does is it would reveal. So if you believe the book of Mormon is a translation of an ancient record, then this reveals something about that translation process. What that would reveal then is Joseph Smith is having some sort of visionary experience, not looking at words on a seer stone because he wouldn't make these kinds of mistake if the words were coming on a seer stone. But what he's doing is trying to put into words, the things that he's envisioning. And so that tells us something about Joseph Smith's participation in that he's participating, creating the words he's participating in trying to, to articulate this stream of thought. And then of course, the people who feel that he composed it himself, then that's evidence of composing the words in the moment of performance. Um, while in the back of the mind, he has a direction of where the story's going and he realizes
1: he's gone off track just a little bit. And so he's pulling it back on. Yeah. Okay. So now something that, I guess we're we're gonna get to but here you, you've got the two you got oral composition which is mm-hmm. made up Not nope, i shouldn't use that which is on the spot um yeah. but we're gonna get to the semi extemporaneous uh, which is what joseph smith falls under and that is yeah. has a plan has a, a skeleton and these heads, as you say, which we're going to look at now, and he kind of fills in the gaps and the details uh, as the tra- as the um, dictation goes along. OK,
0: yeah, so this is this um, th- this talks about people who are doing semi extemporaneous oral composition in general. So not necessarily preaching in sermons because that, that also is under the constraints of a certain type of sermon pattern called the doctrine and use pattern. But in general, what happens is someone premeditates on ideas, they spend a lot of time thinking about it, and say, yeah, how do, I, how, do I wanna, how do I want this story to go? How do I want this sermon to go? How do I want this letter to go? And then as they go along, then they'll write down a key phrase that is a, a, a memory cue to remind them of what they wanted to talk about for a certain section or passage and those are called heads that was the terminology they used for them and then they would just kind of organize them after you write down oh I've got three or four or five ideas then you then you just organize them into a logical sequence or a cohesive sequence that you can kind of remember and with that short outline and you might revise it and change things this is so it's not stuck and then once it's in a kind of a final form you have the short little outline and that's your sketch and they called it a skeleton they also called it short notes or briefs short briefs and then people would get up and they would use those and they might bring it up to the podium with them and then they'll kind of reference it as they're going along and preach Uh, some of the great american preachers would use that style or they would just slip it in their bible a little note in the bible and is so it looks like they're just looking at a page in the bible when in fact they have their little cheat sheet there Or what was very common is because these were so quick and depending on the preparation time, they wouldn't use their notes at all. And that was especially getting popular at the time of Joseph Smith, because there was more and more concern about people speaking according to the spirit. And so if you go up there and you have your notes, people think, oh, he's pre-planned this, it's calculated. But if you don't have notes at all and you just whip off, it's like, oh, the spirit was carrying him through that speech. And all these words came.
1: I love the way that you was common in that. That's amazing. Whoa. Right. So <laughs> no, but it, it is, it is fantastic. So we're going to speak about these heads now. Um, and okay. one thing that I think is amazing is that the Lamanites were all Methodists, which is interesting. I say that just jokingly. <laughs> they, they weren't actually. Me- well, who knows? Who knows? Uh, but if you look on the screen now, okay, uh, we've got this here. This is a uh, an image of a Methodist camp meeting, and to me, yeah. that shows uh, a construction, a, t- a small tower, with the uh, sermon or the the minister giving a sermon from it, and that uh, there yeah. were tents pitched round about all facing the tower so that they could all hear this sermon and, and this meeting over however many days I, I don't know where i've seen that before um, but I'm, I'm sure i've seen that before possibly king
0: benjamin
1: yeah no no, no absolutely yeah um i think i've got, I've got a, a picture that the church like to uh, put together um, oh yeah it's king benjamin he's got this this tower and all of the tents are pitched uh, just like that one looking right at him
0: yeah this uh, particular picture um, i found i stumbled across the book that had it but i'm not the first one to use that image i um okay. uh, there are some other uh people i, I I've, I've seen this in mormon literature being compared to king benjamin before but that's I mean, if you read the passage of King Benjamin giving his speech and then you look at this picture, um, it seems that they were (laughs) written one for the image and the image for the text. They're so close and interesting. But, you know, that's that would be an example. And again, again, I don't want to. We want to say that if joseph smith is a translator and he's participating in that process as an active translator then again he's going to be speaking and trying to articulate what's happening on the gold plates through his experience attending camp meetings in his own life and so there are ways to look at this from a believing point of view without feeling threatened or without feeling like you have to reject this information um and by the same token, if you don't believe the Book of Mormon is a historical text, then you can see the 19th century elements that Joseph Smith um, used in order to create the Book of Mormon as a composition. But again, that's a belief thing, and so I steer clear of that.
1: Yeah, but one thing that I think is amazing is the fact that these laying down the heads is actually mentioned in your book, Yeah. <laughs> but in the Book yeah. of Mormon. Uh, in the Book of Mormon. Jacob when speaking about advice given by Nephi. Mm-hmm. Do, uh,
0: um, that slide might be in there somewhere, but, but it might be hard to find. But uh, it, I'll, uh, you, I'll, you explain um, and I'll have a look. Okay. Now, uh, it's in Jacob. Oh, no. Now, I'm not looking at my slides the way I should, but because I should be able to get to this. Jacob um, is explicit about this technique using 19th century terminology in order to describe this same process. So when we talk about how did, uh, what do Here we think have. about this? Oh, do yeah. you have it? Jacob One. OK. So Jacob one, now this is Jacob and he's coming and he's saying, okay, Nephi, this mantle of authority is now come on to my shoulders. And so now, and he also gave me advice on how to go about leading uh, the Nephi people. And, And he says, he gave me a commandment that I should write upon the plates, a few of those things which I consider to be most precious. And he say, now, if there were preaching, which was sacred or revelation, which was great or prophesying that I should engraven the heads of them upon these plates and touch upon them or expand upon it. It's just like modern English, as much as it were possible for Christ's sake and for the sake of our people. So when we think about what, how the Book of Mormon was constructed, we don't have to theorize about it because the text tells us and we'll go into and I want to go into a little more detail about this too because some people have read this and 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 not quite grasped what I was saying here and i and I take responsibility for not uh being clear but so maybe this will chance to be a little bit clear first of all, when you say engraven the heads of them now the heads where do we why they call it heads instead of you know or it's the same origin of heading, and then this is also the same uh the origin of that word is uh capitulum in Latin. And it's also the same, that's the same origin of the word chapter, which got to us through the French. And that is uh, ultimately coming from the Greek. And what they did is in and this goes way, 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 way back. So when you get back to some of the early like fourth, even fifth century BCE, um, Greek texts. Yes you would have okay so that you've got your little manuscript your parchment or whatever and and they were the, the earliest ones um appear to be in law books so when you're going from one law to another law everything was smeared together and no there's no quick way to reference you know I, you know where's that law against not sacrificing goats on you know the third Sunday of the month you know and and so they didn't have some way to find that so what they would do is whenever you got to a new law they would punch the language out just a little bit into the margin so the margin was slightly different so every time you saw that little bump coming out yes you knew that that was where uh, the new beginning of a new topic and that that is that's what they call the head and that's okay. the origin of it. Now it eventually developed over time. So pretty soon instead of just being a change in the margin, the, then you start going down the centuries. And then pretty soon it was a summary statement, a single summary statement. And then you go further down into the history and then you'll you'll find where they're using it for an index. Uh, Pliny, I think, is one of the fantastic examples because he wrote this multi-volume work about the natural sciences and whatnot. And the first volume is nothing but heads. It's essentially an index at the front of the book, the first volume, that tells you where everything else is located. Okay. And then as you move even further down in time, um, all of these things become the headings of chapters uh, the first time you'll see this in scriptural texts, at least in you know Christianity, of course, after Christian starts, uh, uh, there was an early heretic, I guess, heretic, if you think he was a heretic, Marcion, who uh, Paul's letters made up, he was the first one to form like a tiny early Christian canon. And he would put in headings at the beginning of the letters that not only summarized what was in the letter, but he kind of uh told people what to focus on in a way just by telling people in his summary he was he was suggesting that this is the way you look at and interpret this text in this passage and that's the earliest we're getting there where we actually have a series of heads in a scripture and then that eventually developed i mean you're getting clear back to when you you know down into 11th 12th 13th centuries and in, in france when when the modern the combination of breaking up into uh, chapters and verses, finally coming together into a Bible. Okay. So when you, so what I was pointing out in the book is that when we look, at, when we look at what's going on inside of the Book of Mormon, and when you see the chapter headings there, not all of them because a lot were added later, but the early there are some that were in the original Book of Mormon, like the opening when Nephi says, you know, I and my family we. Uh, we depart from Jerusalem. We were three days in the wilderness. We go these headings. Is, is that um, because all of he that... was
1: trying to encompass 116 pages into uh, a chapter so that he could carry on?
0: Um, no, no, because that right. what that does is what he's providing is an outline of the information that's going to happen later in the okay. story. And, and so each one of those succinct phrases, and sometimes, there, sometimes there'll be a full sentence, a short full sentence, sometimes not, just a noun phrase um, or two or three words. And um, that in the book, and this is what I'm talking about where people make a mistake, that format, that is a printing convention that people in the 19th century found all the time, it was ubiquitous. Now, let me be clear about something. Just because I say it's common in the 19th century is not the same as saying it was invented in the 19th century. It wasn't invented in the 19th century. Okay, some people have said that that's what I'm claiming.
1: Not invented, but it's it's an interesting uh, comparison to, uh, to, to pull out there.
0: Right, so what's happening in the Book of Mormon, what appears to be happening is that Joseph Smith, is um, imitating the structure and formatting of a Bible, along with the language, the to give it a stamp of authority. Okay. And so, when you see something that's written like a Bible and sounds like a Bible, then you kind of think, "Wow, this is sacred text." Whereas yeah, if it's... you're just
1: let's be honest, you know, scratching few... it out he wrote it in the words of however he spoke to you know the other guys behind the the barn Mm -hmm. no one had listened to him it's it's almost as if someone today um i don't know wrote wrote a bible in rap that'd be interesting right but a lot of people Mm -hmm. who don't speak that vernacular and and don't hold that up as being proper just wouldn't listen to it so right. what what was the 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 proper way of speaking back then? King James English. Well, the King James. I mean, even when kids were in common school,
0: you learned about this during your grammar lessons. By the way, um, people were taught what an elevated style was called. They usually referred to it as sublime. That's the one word that comes up again and again with style. And as an example of sublime. Uh, language the bible was often held up as this standard and 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 so if you wanted something to be just truly majestic language you would look for this sublime you know king james shakespeare type shakespearean type style
1: and i'm assuming Um, that the the orators really had like a a one-upmanship going on in the way that they could use that language and, and mold it to their message?
0: Kind of, actually, but it gets really complicated in the early 19th century. So what would happen is with the preachers, some of them, but I think they were in a minority, actually, some of them would try to preach in what they call the scripture style, or Bible speak, or Bible language, scripture language. They, it was called all those different phrases. And there were some uh, ministers, when people describe the type of, um, sermonizing they would do, they would use this particular style. But, but at the same time,